space-time, the ever-expanding frontier. These are the records of the most needlessly complicated rewatch of the Star Trek franchise ever. Its mission, to locate every second, contemplate every eon, from outside time to the Big Bang, to the 20th century, to the end of all existence. To do what no sane entity has ever done before. This is the Temporal Trek Podcast. Hello and welcome to Season 3, Episode 77 of the podcast and Season 4, Episode 3 of Enterprise. We are now into Season 4 and we are continuing the rest of Home from last episode. Yes, it's been a while. Uh, it's been a long time. It's been a very long road. Uh, Dan, unfortunately, will not be joining us. It is a solo show uh, this week. Um, Dan, obviously, having his uh, job and he has responsibilities, uh, so he won't be joining us this time. And I am the only one who, uh, unfortunately, has uh, no important job, so I'm just using any spare time I've got to record. Uh, <laughs> I'm doing uh, Home from the 15th of February, 2154 onwards uh the episode itself sort of takes over the course of several days uh so uh, we're just going to bunch them all up together unlike the last couple of episodes where we've done individual days because so much has been packed into 24 hours of in-universe continuity um this is 15th of february all the way through it's probably about three days covered in the time uh, we'll soon start at 5 minutes and 52 seconds as Columbia is in dry dock, but as it's a solo show, as it's just going to be me, there's not going to be a back and forth, so there won't be as much time of the episode uh, taken up with proper discussion. I thought I would recap uh, the episode and its ratings criteria for any new listeners out there. Uh, apologies to our regular listeners, you've heard it all before, but we have the L-Cars system, as we like to say it. Uh, L-Cars uh, is... L for locate, the point in time, basically it's us talking about the episode with all the timestamps so that we are watching in chronological order. Then C is for consequences, basically taking the episode and looking at it in universe continuity. Is there anything that is set up in this episode? Does it set a precedent? Uh, are there things that are going to change the in-universe Star Trek history because this episode occurs? How relevant is the episode to the overall continuity in history? Uh, then you have AE instead of just A for L cars, it's L cars. Um, AE is alterations, expansions. Uh, whenever you study history, you always look at it with sort of 2020 vision. You're looking back, you're doing a retrospective. Uh, so the idea behind sort of alterations and expansions is to look back at it as if you were a historian. What would you have changed? Was there something you wanted to see differently? Now, as we normally talk about the episode, we often make it a bit more of a creative decision. So we look at it as a TV episode as well. So out of the continuity, you know, is there something in the episode that we kind of, you know, got a bit worried about or grated up against or uh, is dated uh, certainly as we're coming up to uh, 1960s star trek and yeah lots of problems that enterprises had in the past with our sexy trek as it were uh, you know what are the things we'd want to change that to make the episode uh, just nice so that it doesn't irk us um, so uh, alterations expansions is an attempt to sort of look at it both as in universe continuity but try and exchange it as a tv episode as well uh, i'm not saying that we make it any better but what did we not appreciate about the episode what could be done differently perhaps to make it more agreeable to uh, a modern tv audience 
after we do that, we then go to recommendations. Now, recommendations is RR in our LCARS system. Uh, RR is two strands of recommendations. Would we recommend this episode uh, to Star Trek fans? Is it uh, one of the best? Is it one of those ones that you couldn't rewatch Star Trek and miss that episode? Uh, you know, there's always a list where you can turn around and say, mm, I can miss that one. Uh, I'm obviously thinking of your code of honors, that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, with this one, it is looking at this episode. Does it really speak to Star Trek? Is it a good example of what Star Trek can and has done in the past? Then to uh, non-Star Trek fans, try and bring people in. Uh, we don't want to be gatekeepers here to Star Trek. We always want to try and get new fans into the show. Is the episode we're looking at or is the, the time frame that we're looking at necessarily an entire episode? A good indication, would it like hook a new audience member who's never been exposed to Star Trek before or knows very little about Star Trek? Uh, is it a good indication of what Star Trek is to sort of really make that sales point? Is it a good advert perhaps for Star Trek? After recommendations, then it's all about social media and setup. So it's a double S again. Uh, so double letters in our ratings criteria. Uh, social media is just uh, you know sort of to sell our wares, tell you where to find us on all our social medias, and then setting up for the next week where I give you the timestamp for the next watch through, the next episode. So we're going to start at L for L cars at five minutes and fifty two seconds, picking up pretty much where we left off from last time. The Columbia is in dry dock and uh, Archer and Hernandez are sort of talking through all the improvements on the starship. Now, uh, thinking ahead for all of our ratings criteria, I think this may, is probably the most relevant part of the episode to uh, general Star Trek history. We are looking at a ship of exploration being outfitted to be at least a good warship should the need arise. Uh, we're looking at something that... Uh, is a precedent for the entire you know star trek starfleet history uh, they are a well-armed peacekeeping ship uh, it's not entirely exploratory um, as we know uh, later in star trek history there will be fleets with different specializations for different types of ships but generally speaking their ships are well armed enough to sort of stand up against most enemies. They're talking about officer transfers. I quite like that the 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 coloured discs, the coloured square discs, are sort of being uh, given their proto uh, look. So ahead of us moving to the 1960s and the original series, um, it's a believable uh, data chip module that they seem to have that could potentially become the data tapes that we see in uh, the 1960s TOS. Uh, nice little callback uh, to Jeffries, Matt Jeffries, who obviously designed the 1701, uh, and uh, that Captain Jeffries was the designer for the NX program, and Archer originally said no to having too many weapons, and of course he's turned around uh, and said that uh, now he thinks that all the NX classes should be outfit because he's been through this war zindi arc from season three. Uh, and uh, after he actually says that, I think uh, Reed is probably out there rubbing his legs because he can feel the weapons being loaded onto his ship. Uh, I think uh, he would like it very much. We go to Starfleet headquarters and it's not the CGI time loop that we've been seeing every time we come back to uh, to Starfleet headquarters. So I don't think there's any temporal timey-wiminess going on here. And we get a review of Impulse from Season 3. Uh, impulse looking at uh, the use of trellium. Now, this is sort of the first example of this in the episode, but there is someone who sits on the committee as they're reviewing 
the episode impulse and all the things that Archer could or couldn't have done. Um, and someone asks, what is Trellium? Almost like they hadn't been reading all of the status reports. Uh, yet the person who asks is one of the commanders of the mission. You know, if there were some times in season three where they cut back to uh, Admiral Forrest's office and this character was there, uh, and yet he's playing dumb as though he's never heard of Trellium or, or, or spent the last nine months of the Zindi arc, you know, intently studying the potential uh, mission that could lead to Earth's complete annihilation. Uh, but, you yeah. know, Trillium, eh, tiny little detail, don't really need to know about that. I just want to focus on, you know, the, the world being blown up. It, it just seemed very weird that a Starfleet personnel who's in charge of the mission to stop the Zindi knows very little about the ins and outs and details of the mission to stop the Zindi. Soval is sort of acting like season one Soval and being unnecessarily antagonistic and yet then calling out Archer for reacting in an emotional display because of it, even though that's very justified. Uh, the way he um, talks to Archer and does accuse him, he actually does uh, heavily imply in his tone, is his use of sentences, uh, that it's him who is to blame for the destruction uh, of the ship during Impulse, uh, during the episode of Impulse. Uh, and yet he's saying don't get emotional captain yet he is quite clearly uh, implying that it's Archer's fault despite the fact that Phlox is the one who made the determination that the Vulcans were beyond saving uh, there's a quite a, a good line where he says I guess we will never know the complete picture of what happened uh, on that ship uh, well sucks to be you Saval of course I've got my godlike device here on this uh, show so I can watch the entire thing so uh, all you had to do was wait another 300 years and you'd have the full picture uh, and it was just them as a Vulcan uh, member of uh, their own stomp musical uh, and that's all it was uh, there's a great line between uh, Archer and Saval where he says that he actually got more help from the Andorians, which is true, as we saw last season. The Andorians played a larger role in the ongoing Zindi arc. Um, Shran was able to lend more assistance. Admittedly, there was ulterior motives. They wanted the weapon for themselves, but ultimately his actions then led to them knowing more about the weapon and the Zindi's overall plot. And then, of course, the Andorians come to the rescue of uh, the Earth. Uh, they are actually part of the fleet that takes on the sphere when it first arrives in orbit across Earth. Uh, so it's it's very strange that that has to be pointed out. I mean, that's another obvious point. Again, is nobody actually reading the reports from Season 3? It seems very unusual that there's this tribunal and no one seems to be clued in. Is no one doing research anymore? Very strange. But, of course, Archer flies off the handle. Um, it, it feels justified in that this is, you know, a captain, a hero captain character uh, who has just gone through a war arc. Uh, this is his uh, justified sort of anger at being accused for something that was you know, two or three days on a much larger mission. Uh, they were not in any way equipped to help the Vulcans during that episode and yet to be blamed for not having even tried when there was quite literally no other recourse for them they were not outfit they were not a rescue ship if they were rescuing that could have led to a, a critical delay in the Zindi arc um, you, know, you can understand where his anger is coming from but of course Archer is uh, mindful that this is a hearing and then this kind of outburst could easily be a setback for Starfleet so he relieves him sends him on his way gives him a couple of days off uh, to cool off it's never really given why they uh, adjourn and, and recess the hearing for that long uh, 
Archer, although antagonistic, uh, it didn't really do anything to warrant the fact that there was a, a delay to this proceedings. And also, that's the weirdest thing. If this is the 15th uh, of February, and pre- presumably um, the hearing is the 16th, so let's say, just give it a day, that's 24 hours after a mission that they're having an immediate briefing and tribunal. Um, I mean, I, I realise saying information technology has probably advanced quite considerably by the 2150s. However, for something this monumental, something this historic in their uh, history, uh, it feels very rushed. Uh, you know, what are they trying to hide? Uh, <laughs> thinking of the tribunals that we see today uh, in modern day uh, politics and in history, uh, any kind of investigation, any war scenario, uh, a debriefing um, is a small affair. And then you have a bigger tribunal and investigation much later that takes months to prepare because there are legal ramifications of what actually happens. Uh, it's It seems odd that they've jumped into what is effectively uh, a tribunal to judge whether the NX-01 could continue uh, its usual mission of exploration and uh, that they have jumped straight into it uh, seems rather odd we go back up to the Enterprise and Phlox is travelling back down to Earth but for some reason he's taking all of his pets uh, it seemed a bit confusing I, I realised that they're going for a comedic moment you know he's he's struggling to carry all the bags so uh, Reed then jumps in and they have this little conversation about how Earth is quite xenophobic now that it's uh, the Zindi arc the Zindi storyline has led to uh, an outbreak of xenophobia uh, and, and then Reed is sort of saying, have you taken all the precautions? Uh, you know, he's looking out for his friend, but equally it, 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 it's quite interesting that this comes from Reed, not only because he is the security officer, but because he's the character who eh, has the tendency to fly off a handle. As we know, Reed isn't our favorite person. Uh, he's given over to the idea that everything is unsafe. Um, as you can see later in the episode, it is kind of justified. Uh, but obviously someone's writing this show. Um, if you go onto all of Earth, he's saying that all of Earth has become xenophobic, that there isn't, um, believable areas that are way more hostile to aliens than, uh, other areas. You know, some areas are slightly more, uh, open and more accepting. Uh, certainly if they're going down to San Francisco, which I believe is the plan for the rest of the episode, um, uh, San Francisco is always painted in the Star Trek universe as a very liberal area. So it's it's quite hard to believe why there is this xenophobia everywhere. Uh, you'd think that that society would remain that way the whole way through. Uh, certainly because, you know, it, it's the place where the Vulcan Consulate is, where, where all of these places are stationed, that there are so many other aliens. As Dan has mentioned in previous episodes, that when you spend time with someone, it's very hard to then hate them. Uh, so it seems odd that the area that is playing host to uh, diplomats, to to the alien races that come to Earth, um, you know, in that immediate area, that there is a, a resentment to them. Um, it, it seems unusual. Uh, you know, that, that's something you normally expect to be miles and miles away. You know, as you get further away from the urban areas into a much rural or suburban environment, then you start to see that hatred because there is that divide. There is that distance in society. Um, if you're in a fairly liberal area, which already has a group that are being discriminated against, those nearer to it, it makes it harder um, to to feel that way. We then go up to the California mountains and Archer and Hernandez are going hiking, I guess. Uh, <laughs> this bit of the episode, um, 
uh, although it's, it leads to some nice moments between them and there are some great lines and, and discussions between them, I think this is the bit that I didn't really buy into as much. It, it feels forced. They feel they have to ascend a mountain to then uh, prove something. It, it, at no point has Archer really shown an aptitude for mountaineering or climbing. You know, that's always been something that's been given to, uh, oh, you know, uh, what's his name? Uh, Oh, he sits on the front of the, the bridge. Uh, Timmy, I think it was. Yeah, Timmy. Um, he's the one who's always wanted to do rock climbing. Uh, so it, with Archer, it kind of feels like it would be better if he went back to Henry Archer's workshop. You know, maybe the family house is still there. Um, a little bit more like family from Best of Both Worlds, that he goes back home. Uh, he literally goes back home. Um, them climbing rocks seems unusual. You know, it'd be more fitting that he goes home and works on a bike or works on a piece of machinery that used to be his dad's and then he's sort of fixing it. I don't know. It, it just them going mountaineering and climbing just doesn't feel as believable to Archer's character than um, some other more engineering type exercise. Almost like, you know, these are two uh, Top Gun pilots. Why are they not going to piloting school and he's flying his aggression out? You know, something like that. Um, it, the, the the mountaineering and climbing just doesn't feel right for the episode. And I think that's why this episode, although enjoyable, and I do like it, and highly focused on character, which is something I've always wanted uh, in, in the Enterprise episodes, um, I don't know, it just doesn't feel like it's doing the right character development when it comes to Archer. We then go to Vulcan, and uh, as was set up last time, uh, Trip and T'Pol are then going to Vulcan, and we find out a bit more about T'Pol's backstory. Um, their home is ornate, and that Vulcans have an appreciation for beauty. Um, it's a really nice zen sort of area, I quite like the design of it, and it, it, for me, fits in with all the Vulcan stuff we've seen up to now, even when we go back in time to uh, the 20th century, back to season one of this podcast. Uh, the, the sort of geometric shapes, the patterns, everything is very zen, um, it, it fits, the home decor is believably Vulcan. Uh, her mum shows up. Uh, there's a bit, a very awkward bit. If you're actually watching the episode, you can see her, the actress who plays her mum, sitting in the background. You can see her just waiting for her cue to come in. She's just standing there. Um, you couldn't even argue that she saw them out the window and she's just watching. Um, she's clo so clearly an actress waiting for her cue to come in. Uh, look out for it. It's in the background. It's very unusual. Um, but uh, it, it made me ch chuckle uh, as I was watching this. Um, Trip gives the uh, live long and prosper. Gives the old salute um, out, so it's quite a nice little moment. Um, they start speaking Vulcan or Vulcanian, I guess I should call it, uh, in front of him, which incredibly awkward and very rude, and in keeping, I suppose, with the Vulcans we've met so far. Interesting that to poll um, her mum says that uh, the character has never brought anybody home that she's ever worked with. Um, uh, it's just very strange that. Admittedly, this is a relationship she's having with Trip, so that she's bringing Trip with her to sightsee and you know to further their emotional relationship. But um, strange that you know a Vulcan would not bring work colleagues to stay. You know, it would seem the most logical that they actually, as we've mentioned in previous episodes, you know, what would a Vulcan hotel look like? Um, do Vulcans really have hotels? Is there really? It's not really logical. You would stay with family friends or associates or, or perhaps a, um, a guide who could then show you Vulcan. Um, I think 
the Vulcans would see it as more logical that you stay with a native Vulcan rather than uh, an, an unusual or kind of um, artificial uh, setup like a hotel, which isn't an authentic experience. I don't know why. It's just something the Vulcans just seemed to me that they would they would do that. Um, so it just seemed odd. It's a really throwaway line. Doesn't really ma mean anything. I'm digging way too much into it. As you know, I see things that aren't really there. Um, but yeah, it just seemed odd that Vulcans wouldn't bring people to their homes um, if they were bringing colleagues back. Uh, it to me would seem the most logical and honourable, as gets mentioned in some of the um, uh, the things that are coming up in this episode about their society, their structure, that they wouldn't welcome people into their home. It seems the most logical choice. The scenes in here, the way they're blocked and the way that uh, Jolene is sort of standing next to the other characters, she's standing on raised platforms. She's so tiny. I don't think I've ever noticed this before. Um, she's slight, obviously. She's so trim and slim uh, and she's physically fit. But, um, yeah, just so tiny compared to everybody. It was, it, it was so noticeable in the front room of her house, her family home. And I think thinking back to the archer point where the the climbing didn't match going back home for um to pole's character felt the most realistic um this was her chance to go back home sort of finally go back to vulcan and maybe reassess who she is and maybe further her relationship with trip there's a moment where they say that they never got her mum's letters which I mean, we've throughout season three been shown or heard people saying we well, maybe we should contact Starfleet and things. The letters weren't delivered. Like, was there a limited bandwidth that that never came up? There was no, um, there was no backup. Um, short of maybe they got the transmission before uh, Steve and his uh, acolytes deleted the database. Maybe they got the download and then they never read the letters. You never went through. Um, I don't know, it just, comms difficulties just seem to come out of nowhere. That was never mentioned during season three of Enterprise. So it seems unusual why all of a sudden now she's not getting letters from home, which you'd think would be, uh, if not the first thing, at least a second priority when you're actually sending a data dump to Enterprise during the Zindi Arc mission. We find out at this point that her mum has retired from her teaching role. We find out more intrigue towards this at the moment, but that's the party line that her mum is giving uh, to Les at this uh, point. To Les, oh, it's such a weird name. I don't know. To Les, such a British name, really, isn't it? Um, it's old Les, good old Les. Um, to Les, just, yeah, just makes me chuckle each time and does make me think of our good friends over at Measure of a Fan um, uh, because they they made a great episode about this when they reviewed it as well, uh, uh, talking about Les Dennis, who is a... Uh, a British personality over here um, but yeah just just very funny then we realize that there's a complication to uh, the love story between Trip and T'Pol that Koss her fiance who I'm pretty sure has never been mentioned in the series before I don't believe that her arranged marriage to Koss ever came up but Trip is talking like this has been several conversations uh, through their time at what point did they have this conversation that's what sort of made me think about it in this episode at no point during season one or season two do i feel that their friendship reached a point where they were talking about certainly a, a very intimate thing such as to poll not loving costs so i guess we have to believe that this conversation about him 
occurred during the Zindi arc when they were falling in love, when they were getting intimate, when they were perhaps doing the neuropressure sessions. Um, as annoying as they were, there was obviously a question and a conversation that uh, we missed out on. Uh, but Koss coming up in conversation, uh, as far as I know, never mentioned before. If I'm completely wrong and I've missed something and I've just forgotten the last three years of uh, our history on this podcast, please remind me. Uh, but Koss, I don't believe, ever got mentioned before. We're back to the hiking. Uh, Archer is getting lots of uh, schools named after him, more than Cochrane. Again, historically speaking, quite significant. We're now finding out that he is now the new hero of this age, Cochrane being the previous century, and now Archer seems to be the man of the hour. There's the debate about Makos, and it's that weird TV thing where they talk about it. There's a gap for a montage sequence of them walking through the hills and they are finishing the conversation so clearly hours later. It's almost like he started the sentence, just stopped talking and didn't finish it for another hour. All I will say is if she is going to invite the Makos, maybe invite them to meetings or at least get a security tactical chief who's actually going to work with them. Uh, I think uh, the biggest piece of advice that wasn't put on the table by Archer is maybe don't get someone like Reed to work with the Makos. Yeah, it's a pretty good idea. Um, it's quite funny because this conversation about Makos does actually bring up the fact that she did read the reports. She even says, I did read the reports, which, given conversations earlier when I was talking about the tribunal, it's quite nice to know somebody's reading them. That's always good. We find out that there's a mountain lion. Uh, they find the remains and track them, and uh, Archer sort of just jumps over with a tricorder, confirms it's a mountain lion, and they kind of move on. Um, there's a bit of a dig where she sort of says, oh, I'm so glad you're here to protect me. It, it, I don't know, it just felt like it came out of nowhere. Um, he's just literally, he's holding the tricorder, so of course he tells her what it, the remains actually are. Um, I don't know, It just it, the way the line is delivered, it, almost like she's making him feel bad for doing his job, or at least looking out for the person he's hiking with. You know, Surely, when there's two of you hiking, you look out for each other. You, you know, look at the remains of what could potentially be a predator in your local area. Um, I don't know. It just it seemed like an unnecessary dig, and I'm not totally sure where it came from. Was she accusing him of being too masculine? You know, to, trying to be a white knight syndrome or something? I, it, I don't know. It just it didn't seem to come anywhere or come from anywhere in the previous dialogue. You know, so far these are friends. Archer's going through a tough time. She's trying to you know make him wake up to that. But that dig just, I don't know, just didn't seem to work for me. Um, it didn't seem to come out. It's like, oh, maybe uh, we should keep moving. You know, something like that. Some other line. Um, her dig at him just didn't seem to work. We go back to Vulcan. It's 4am in the morning and you have to get uh, woken up and prepare a meal for the people who are your hosts. Which again comes back to my theory that it's so much more logical that the Vulcans wouldn't have hotels. That you actually stay with a Vulcan family when you visit Vulcan. Um, your contact, your liaison. Um, that I, I don't know. I'd, uh, are the Vulcans just a whole planet of pen pals? It just makes uh, sense to me. I don't know why. Uh, there we go. Now it sort of comes to to pass that Topol has now said, well, actually, maybe I'm not going to rejoin the High Command. I'm actually going to accept a mission with Starfleet. Um, Telez then gets tripped to fix the synthesizer. Um, and there's a talk about, you know, being encouraged to follow your own path is something the humans do, not necessarily the Vulcans do. You know, we do the honourable thing, not necessarily what we want to do. Um, but yeah, the, the whole trip fixing the synthesizer is the start of a very weird 
relationship between Telez and Trip. We also find out something interesting about Topol's father, who obviously is not longer around. He is a deceased character as far as uh, the, con- the audience is concerned. We've never met him. We've never heard of him, to be fair. Um, and he apparently believed in the best for Vulcan. Telez sort of interprets it uh, in a way that to us it would probably be seen as patriotism, perhaps nationalism. Um, uh, a, a sort of jing- jingoistic way of looking at things. You, you only do the things that are good for Vulcans, not for other people. Um, sort of mirroring, I guess, the xenophobia that uh, has mirrored its way into Earth. The next scene coming up about flocks and, and the way that humans feel towards aliens at the moment. It's interesting that Topol has a different interpretation. It was actually about following honour and, uh, you know, uh, a good career. Um, you know, looking out for the best for yourself and, and a most logical path. But Telez sees it as a more patriotic line. So it would be interesting to see, you know, if Enterprise had gone on for, you know, the many more seasons, whether we would have had flashbacks to her father and actually seen what kind of man he was. Was he that patriot that Telez is painting him in? Or was he Topol's more pragmatic uh, father? You know, that actually he took decisions that, or, or, or favoured decisions at least, that were good for yourself uh, and would promote the most logical path for you. Um, it, I don't know, just meeting the father character and, and seeing whose interpretation was perhaps the closest to reality. Um, would be an interesting callback. We now get the 602 Club, and I think this is possibly my favourite scene, uh, just because of the CGI shot that comes up later, but it's um, it's also good for a laugh. Uh, Reed is signing autographs uh, and says, I'm sorry you can't get any tours of the Enterprise, but neither of the two people getting the autographs actually asked that question. Um, uh, now, it may be that they asked it before the uh, scene actually starts, but the way he says it, the way he's being really skeezy and horrible, um, yeah, I don't think those ladies actually did ask. I don't even think they asked for the autographs. I reckon maybe they gave the card they were asking for directions. And uh, he just thought that, oh, they want to talk to him because he's a hero. Um, so I genuinely don't think anyone was actually there. Um, they also don't ask anything from Phlox or from Timmy, which makes me think that they aren't actually there for autographs at all. And... You know, Reed just got the wrong end of the stick and because he is so skeezy, because he is being such a typical Reed, it is of course a Reedred. Yes, not, not not very British at all, really. I think she's pretty. You ever noticed her bum? She's got an awfully nice bum. Shut up, Reed! I've, my problem with Reed is that he just I don't I don't believe a word he says. Now, if they did ask for um, the autographs and they didn't ask for Flox and Timmy, does that mean even people on Earth are not actually reading anything about the Enterprise's most dangerous mission and protection of the entire Earth? Uh, Again, is no one actually reading the reports? Very strange. And of course, Reed is wearing a jacket just to gain attention. Attention they do gain, but unfortunately, it's from a complete jackass. Uh, He... uh, uh, goes over to Flocks and says, oh, your species don't like alcohol. Oh, I think you're thinking of the Balkans. And I always get your people mixed up. And it's straight away. And I actually think the actor delivering this scene you know, makes us dislike him straight away. Not only is he just picking on our favourite character of Flocks, not only is he picking on that um, that guy, uh, Timmy. Sorry, I completely forget his name all the time. And, of course, he's picking on Reed, which actually I don't mind. That makes me kind of like him as well. 
but he is very instantly dislikable. And I think it's the one thing I appreciate from the actor's performance. Reed then stands up and is clearly at least a foot shorter than the man and has no intimidating presence whatsoever. I, you know, if I were that racist guy, I think I could have him. <laughs> it, it doesn't really stand up at all. I know he's uh, military, but he's not exactly the most intimidating security officer we've ever seen in Star Trek. The fight breaks out. It's a bit slow. The punches are a bit slow to come together, uh, but you get the the view that, you know, the, a fight is breaking out. It's not the uh, safe place that Earth um, at least seems to be um, or was before uh, the 2050s happened. The racist guy does bring up a, an interesting point. Um, you know, you Starfleet types are telling everybody where we live. That's not necessarily a good idea. Um, a kind of valid point. I mean, if you think of all the dangerous aliens, we've already met the Klingons, an aggressive warlike species. We've just had the Zindi. Um, you know, maybe giving the location of Earth isn't the best way to uh, win over someone's trust. You know, um, set up diplomatic channels, set up go-betweens, you know, have ships that meet out in space, but don't necessarily talk about where you come from in your home base straight away. Don't give them the coordinates straight away. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a legit concern, I suppose. Flox, of course, begs everyone to stop as they're throwing punches left, right and centre, and then he puffs out. And I think that this is the scene that always sticks up in my head for this episode. This is the one I always remember, where he puffs up like a puffer fish to try and scare off in, in an instant reaction. Um, but Reed's reaction, I think, is the bit that makes me laugh the most. He just goes, Oh, Doctor. Uh, it's almost a... Oh, my. Just like George Takei. Oh, my. We go back to Vulcan, and Trip has fixed the synthesizer in what is possibly the softest of softcore porn uh, we've ever had in Star Trek so far. Um, she... Uh, Telez is in the kitchen with him, and she's washing very long vegetables, which look very suggestive in the way she's washing them uh, with this weird glove mitten thing um again go back to the episode and watch this this scene again it is very weird he's fixing an appliance you know short of some weird saxophony jazz music in the background this is a very uncomfortable scene to watch and i'm not entirely sure why um they're having a very genuine conversation though it's about to pole and trip and why he loves her and she sees right through him she knows that there is an uh, intense emotional uh, connection between them um it does mean that it does play into a bit of a trope that does annoy me sometimes in that the mother is always intuitive the mother knows her child um you know it's i don't know it's a bit played out you know telez is an estranged mother she shouldn't really have that instinct right i mean they don't they don't get on. They clearly have not spoken properly for a long time. Her mother would have seen her grow up and perhaps seen the woman she used to be. Um, and she's recognising some character traits. But I don't know. In writing, when you have a mother character, you always go to the trope that she knows her child inside and out. Um, I don't know. It it just bothers me. I just feel like you know, not every parent knows their child and their motivations to a T. Um and it uh, just one of those things, one of those little niggles. Me, you know, I always think I'm a better writer than I actually am. It just seems odd. Isn't there not a better way we could write that scene where she figures it out for herself because she's smart, not necessarily because she supposedly knows everything about her daughter? You know, just just something. Koss then arrives and there's a bit of a to and fro between her, um, T'Pol and Koss. And 
we find out now there's a deeper meaning to the story. She wasn't retiring. Telez did not retire, but she was made to retire. She was actually ousted because of the decisions made by uh, T'Pol. Uh, and it's to Paul who could potentially undo that consequence if she marries Koss. Koss has an influential family, which makes me hate Koss so much. <laughs> he is using and abusing his position because he wants to force to Paul to marry him. It's also just very confusing what his offer actually is. He says you only have to live on Vulcan for a year. Well, straight away uh, from day one of being married, or is it you know she can go off, do a bit of her career? come back six months later, start that year process, then go off. Is it like a gap year? Um, he's, I don't know, it, it, it's not really clear to me why exactly he's pursuing to pole, beyond the fact that he's perhaps attracted to her. Actually, you know, he realises how much he lucked out um, getting to pole as his intended. But I don't know, just really, really strange that it's not really clear why he wants this. You know, if this is an unfavourable family, if they have fallen on hard times, if T'Pol has made such catastrophic errors in judgment according to the High Command, why is he so invested in getting T'Pol when they have not spent any time together? Uh, we've never heard of this character. We've never seen this character before. Um, why now? Why is he so invested? And it makes him seem creepier than he actually is. You know, if he is genuinely smitten with her, if he is in love with her, I know there was no trace of that in this scene. There was no Vulcan-y way of displaying that, which admittedly is hard for an emotionless or emotionless people, someone who suppresses them. It's hard to write a scene and give away the fact that he loves her. Um, I don't know it just it feels more creepy and possessive and makes me not like Koss. Um, uh, it, again, it's one of those things about this episode that I just don't really like and I don't really see the need for beyond setting up a love triangle situation story later in season four. We're back to the hiking again. Uh, we talk about the planet in Strange New World. So we're getting callbacks to previous missions. Uh, you know, uh, we're not ready yet. And Archer is, is giving a, a speech that I don't think he would give two and a half years ago. And he says, well, that's after all these eulogies. Um, these are nice conversations. Again, just, I don't know, just doesn't seem to fit. Why is he hiking? Um, you know, this could have been a conversation on a balcony. Um, go back to the first episode, the very first episode of Enterprise. Uh, go back to Broken Bow. He goes back to the summer house that we saw in the flashbacks. Um, and he's got a telescope set up and he's spotting the stars, just as he did in Two Days and Two Nights back in Risa. He had a hut with a telescope. Have the telescope. Hernandez is looking for that star. She finds the first planet. She's trying to um, get him to talk about his positive exploration missions early in the mission, but he keeps on coming back to Zindi. Um, I don't know. It, for me, it would have made a slightly more believable scenario for Archer to be in. Again, it's a minor niggle when you think about it. it the current character is still having a nice conversation. I just feel that the setting doesn't quite fit for me and the character of Archer. Back on Vulcan, T'Pol then confronts Telez. Uh, we then get the fallout between the two of them, and it's a as well as much of a full-blown row as you can get between two Vulcans. We find out about Pajem, this is being the reason. And now we get a bit more about Telez as a character. As she says that you know, your union with Trip will bring shame to your children. Um, you know, one hundred percent pure um just vile attitude to have that you know that there is no room for your people when you are of two worlds. 
Of course, this is a classic setup for Spock and the trials and tribulations he's going to go through, and that that view will still be prevalent a hundred years from now. Um, it, it, it just makes us not like Teles, surely. Um, Teles instantly going to that part of the argument, not necessarily looking at Topol's actions at Pajem. She is looking at the wider, you know, impact of her union with a human as as the real problem at heart, not necessarily the political decision she took with Pajem. Um, she does say, I assume, you know, we can have these children. Of course, E2 happened. Um, I'm sure some reports were written up about E2. And again, is no one actually reading any of the reports of what happened in The Expanse? I mean, come on, people. And we end at 28 minutes and 44 seconds. We then uh, jump back as there is an, a dream sequence and we come back at 29 minutes and 52 seconds. As uh, new listeners will find out, we don't include dream sequences because they happen in that split second of unconsciousness and it's not reality. Uh, this device that I am wa working on and looking at history through that I got from the godlike entities. Uh, yeah, check out that story from our previous seasons of the podcast. Um this only allows me to see history as it happened. Um, I can't see people's dreams, so we don't watch dreams. It has mean, uh, meant that we've got quite a few episodes where we've completely missed it out because it's an entire dream sequence. Archer then wakes from that nightmare. Hernandez is then watching him. Very creepy, but hey. Um, anything that happens on the mountain stays on the mountain. Oh, yeah. Oh, my. He waited to get out there as it's the last place anyone would shake his hand. Again, if he went to his own private home and family home, okay, maybe the journalists of the future would follow him there and he'd be have paparazzi and things. But if it's his private home, people are still not going to be shaking his hands there. Surely that's a family home. He owns that. Um, I don't know, just again, it just figured, you know, if you're going up to a mountain, there's nothing to stop the paparazzi from following him. If he's that important, if people are hounding him so much, which we did not see in the previous scenes, I will remind you, back in last last week with the last episode, no one shook his hand when he went into the 602 Club. No one even paid him any attention, which makes me think people are seriously not reading these reports. Um, but we've not seen any evidence of that. So this line just feels, again, like it doesn't really have a place in this episode. Um, as a reason why they've gone hiking doesn't make it as believable. If it's a private family home, he would be more isolated um, and it surely would work better in the episode than going hiking into a public arena where anyone could find him. Yeah, very strange. Again, I'm hammering this point home way too much. We now get that it's all about guilt, uh, the guilt of torturing innocent people the hockey puck uh, pirates from the expanse uh, marooning the innocent people that they stole the warp core for i mean at least someone's mentioning these guys but still no one went back to check on them i mean the andorians got into the expanse pretty quickly couldn't shran have gone back and maybe delivered a warp core you know with a little ribbon on there saying compliments from earth you know really sorry we stuck you stole your other one but now you can get home uh, no hard feelings you know you know they're Surely there's other ways they could have got a walk cord to that person. Hernandez starts calling him out on this and says, you know, this is bullshit. I mean, is it really? Um, it's a pretty genuine concern. He did some very questionable things in The Expanse. Uh, maybe not to the extent that we seem to remember that he did. Um, certainly this is something Dan and I have come across as we've rewatched Enterprise. There are things that we thought were far more significant that actually on rewatch haven't been played when you really 
count the amount of instances there are in the story and you think of it in a historical timeline, there haven't been as many things to lead to a character justification than you think. Uh, whenever something comes up, it doesn't seem to fit the words that are in the mouths of the characters. The amount of times he did something questionable. This is the one few times where you actually do have quite a few bits of evidence that match it. Um, but other times that hasn't always been the case. She then kisses him, and apparently that makes everything better. I mean, she's a very attractive lady. Um, but, uh, it, it, you know, why? Again... Does it need to be a romance story in order to fix a man? It's, I don't know, it just seems weird, doesn't it? I mean, would we accept this the other way around if she was having self-doubt and Captain Archer sort of was swanning in trying to save the day? Um, how is that any different to the, the way that Kirk reacts in the 60s? You know, he's, he swoons in and he kisses her and that would make her life better. Why is it any more acceptable the other way around? Just, I don't know. Again, I just don't believe the scene and the resolution for Archer's side of this episode. We're on Vulcan and some badge CDI is back. We've got a background, a very beautiful looking background of Vulcan, some statues and some lava pits and a very obvious greeny blue line all the way around the actors as they are standing next to a CGI green screen. T'Pol then tells Trip that she's actually going to marry Koss for the political decision of saving Telez's career. She's actually managed to negotiate with Cost to get that one-year weird thing uh, worked out so she can actually have her career. She doesn't have to come back to Vulcan. Uh, quite convenient year, I guess. We then get an established fact that uh, Earth to Vulcan is 16 light-years away. Um, I believe this is the first time it's actually say stated in Star Trek chronology. It has not been stated previously in other episodes of uh, Star Trek as we've gone chronologically from the Big Bang all the way up to 2154. So this is the first time that establishes that 16 light years lie between Earth and Vulcan. And Tripp says, you brought me all this way to watch you get married to somebody else. Back to the hiking. Um, should have brought a camera. Uh, this looks amazing. Uh, smoochy smoochy. Apparently his problems are over they aren't going to take this conversation anywhere else so he seems happy now uh, kiss did the trick i guess uh, what do i know uh, clearly i was wrong and that's all he actually needed rather than a, you know a good talking to or some kind of uh, emotional plea to his intelligence no just kiss the man and he's absolutely fine does archer just need a girlfriend is that what we're really saying here we find out that they actually did have a past together. They are romantically linked. I think that was pretty heavily inferred throughout the entire episode, but it gets said again anyway. Um, but they're now both captains, and they just make out. And that's the end of that. We go back to Enterprise, and we finally get Hoshi. Uh, <laughs> a character who is completely missing from this entire episode, and yet arguably is now back home, the place that she feels the most comfortable, and she's confined to a scene in sickbay. Uh, we find out that the parasites from the end of the Zindi arc are almost out of her system completely. So, yay, uh, that's good. But the person who was supposed to get some shore leave to Norway, Sweden, nice cold area, remember that at the very end of the Zindi arc? Archer made a big promise and she's still on the Enterprise? We didn't get any mention of where she went, who she saw, what she did. Um... I know a character who has felt so uneasy and uncomfortable out in space to have her back in home soil. It might have been interesting to see a different side of her. Admittedly, we get a really nice moment where she talks about standing up to prejudice. And this is not how you deal with it by hiding away in sickbay. You actually face it head on. And 
it's a nice moment where she seems to have the upper hand for a change. Normally, it's the other way around. Phlox is trying to help her. He's trying to, you know, uh, give her rational reasons for not being so scared. Um, so it's quite nice for the, you know, the shoe to be on the other foot. But equally, maybe have it be a conversation where we talk about the leave that was so well earned. Maybe. We finally go back to uh, Starfleet HQ and, uh, oh no, it's two days later and the CGI time loop is back. Those same four people are having the same conversation on the same balcony in San Francisco. I mean, does, does Starfleet just get locked in this for the entirety of the 2100s? I don't know. Archer's back in the briefing, but it's now over all of a sudden. Uh, so we had a big old lead up to changing his mind. There's not even a montage sequence to say that he's answering questions now, but seems to be more in charge of himself. I mean, I don't know. Where was this going? I I just feel like Archer was criminally underserved as well. The man who was in charge of this massive Zindi arc. Um, Pipe's not the most important character. As we've established, there are quite a lot of important MVPs as we've been going through the years, but he's still the man in charge. And I don't know. It just kind of feels like it was... They went hiking and his problems got solved with a kiss. That's basically what happened this episode. Perhaps Archer used his superpower, maybe explained everything off screen and then everybody just knew what happened. I mean, that is at least in keeping with Archer. Just as Savol is about to leave though, uh, we then get an understanding at least between the two. Archer apologises to him. But Saval also then capitulates and said, maybe I went too far as well. And they actually leave on a handshake. And I think this is the best setup for what we know is going to be coming in season four. We know these two characters are going to reach a much deeper understanding than we've ever seen before between the two of them. Saval also says thank you, which kind of mirrors everything we've been seeing on the Vulcan story, because that was something that Teles said that Vulcans never do. Back on Vulcan, Teles sees Trip in her dead husband's clothes, and I guess we're going back to the porn, the light porn video that they seem to be making. Like, he's done fixing the appliances, now he's become the new husband. I mean, is he a toy boy for Teles now? I mean, it's just a very awkward scene. I don't know why. I just feel like him being in the clothes of her dead husband, who's also Paul's father, but he's in love with Paul. It's very strange. Very, very strange indeed. I don't know. It just makes me feel a little bit icky. And I'm not entirely sure why. He watches on as T'Pol then gets married in a ceremony that, to me, feels believable as a Vulcan ceremony. From all the things we've seen throughout history, all the times we've seen Vulcans up to now, the way that the minister or priest or or whatever, the man saying the words, uh, is and what they're called... It feels like a very familiar Vulcan setup. T'Pol then gives a kiss to Trip on his cheek, and yeah, he watches on as the episode closes out, and we feel sorry for Trip. I genuinely feel sorry to have to watch the woman you love get married to somebody else. Um, to a, a guy we've never met, and uh, probably won't know much more about as the year goes on. We'll see him a couple more times, I'm sure, and then that will be it. But I will say one thing, Trip just looks like a Jedi in those ropes. Yeah, there's a Star Wars thing for you as well. And that's it. We have ended the episode. So we have located the point in time. Now we move on to consequences. Question whether it addresses the consequences. Consequences. 
The concept of learning from one's mistakes shouldn't be difficult for a Vulcan of your wisdom to understand, Ambassador. I don't wish to contradict Captain Archer. But learning from one's mistakes is hardly exclusive to humans. So, consequentially, uh, looking historically, uh, we are seeing the tribunal, the fallout from this indie. Um, we are seeing the criminal proceedings, perhaps, the, um, the fallout from uh, the conflict as well. Uh, we are seeing that starships will now be outfitted with weapons, despite their uh, peaceful intentions and exploration mission. We are now seeing starships and Federation starships, at least, and Starfleet uh, being armed to the teeth. Uh, before heading out of space dock. So that's a pretty big coincidence as well. For the characters, Archer, I don't know, has been given an out, I guess. As unbelievable as I found it, it's at least an out for the character to perhaps not bother talking about the Zindi arc anymore. Um, it's a way of spending 45 minutes of, you know, wiping our hands clean of what season three did. Not necessarily in a satisfying way for me, but at least to the general audience, it would probably say, well, all right, everything happened in season three. We can forget about that now. Everybody got that? T'Pol is now married. Pretty big thing there. And of course, the love story with T'Pol and Trip will go on and become more complicated. Um, Teles, we actually learn more about the mother, who will then be a character later on in the Vulcan arc to come. Um, but again, doesn't really... Uh, offer major consequences for the Star Trek universe and the timeline. All the other characters kind of seem a bit forgotten. I mean, Phlox had that whole story with the, the jackass, with the uh, xenophobia, but really that isn't going to come back again till later in season four. It's a good setup, but I feel like that story, again, just went nowhere. And ultimately, that's where I feel home ends up going. Consequentially, the episode doesn't feel as weighty as it possibly should do, considering it is the episode after a huge major incident and an entire season-long arc for the TV show. Uh, it seems an odd episode to come back to. After consequences comes alterations and expansions. You've already seen uh, that the Archer stuff, I just feel like the setting was wrong. Uh, the hiking, you know, I believe that Archer is a very physical individual. He probably does like hiking, but it's never really been a fixture of who he is. The man that he is, is an engineer and a pilot. To have him back on the beach, perhaps flying that model again. The model that was significant when Trip was cloned. The model that was significant in Broken Bow about not being afraid of the wind. There are conversations and mirroring and uh, parallels that could have been drawn in the dialogue that match back to the last three years but specifically back to the first year you know we're rediscovering archer's need to explore again there are clever ways they could have done that that weren't explored here it ultimately descends to him getting a kiss and he's happy again um perhaps not cured but it just didn't seem believable for me the vulcan stuff it makes sense it's a good setup uh it lends drama and weight to the decisions that T'Pol has been taking all these years uh, and the home ramifications of what has taken place. Expansions, what would I want to come back to? Uh, what parts of history in the Star Trek universe do I want to learn more, learn more about? I want to see more about the Columbia. You know, how is it going? How is it being adapted? Um, what is the fallout of the tribunal? Um, 
were decisions made from that tribunal that then go on to affect Starfleet? Is there a historical fallout and significance to uh, the people that Archer left behind and abandoned and took the Warp Corps? Um, you know, get a, a line just to say we are sending a relief squad. They're going to take months to get there, but at least when they arrive with the fresh Warp Corps, if they trust us, um, you know, we can save their lives and it won't be three years for them to get home. They'll eventually get home in a year. Um, just so that we, the audience, know they weren't forgotten, maybe. That would be a nice little expansion for me as well in the wider consequence of the Star Trek universe. That's it, really, for Alterations expansions for me. Oh, and of course, Hoshi. Hoshi just needed to get a bigger storyline because she suffered a lot and she gave a lot more uh, pretty much all the other characters. So after Alterations expansions, we get to the pirate criteria. Ars Recommendations. Arrgh, me mateys. What did you think of the story? From my perspective. That's one way of looking at it. I'm going to recommend Arrgh, me mateys. To Star Trek fans is our first recommendation. Um, is it a good Star Trek episode? No, I don't think I can say it is. Um, it, it, whilst it is the episode that is designed in a TV show formula, if there is such a thing, um, to give the characters a, a breathing room, a chance to react to the last season of material, it doesn't really, for me, feel satisfying. So for me, I would not recommend it to Star Trek fans. Perhaps the Star Trek community would, and perhaps they look more favourably on this episode than I do, but um, to me, it doesn't really feel like it went the right direction uh, and didn't do enough. Perhaps if Home had been expanded over two episodes, we got a bit more meatier political fallout. You know me. I always want a bit more meaty. I always want a bit more political. Um, but that would make it a better Star Trek episode for me. For right now, it just feels like it was an episode that was put in because they need to get an out. They need to change the characters and reset them back to the beginning. Or at least move the pieces into a new story, such as the T'Pol and Trip storyline. To new Star Trek fans... There is so much context that is needed from season three. You'd need to at least watch the Zindi arc first for this to be relevant. Otherwise, you're seeing characters go through a crisis that has no setup whatsoever. So for me, no, this is not one I would recommend to Star Trek fans. And that's it for recommendations. So all that remains is socials and setup. So socials, of course, you found the show. But uh, if you want to follow us and make sure that you are staying current with all Temporal Trek thingies, we've got our Twitter. We've got uh, the Facebook page. We have uh, Instagram. Obviously, that's my personal Instagram. That is Daniel Hitch underscore writer on Instagram. So do follow us. Uh, I post about all of our things on Hive, Mastodon. Uh, there's a Discord server. If you're on Discord, head on over, find the Temporal Trek uh, Discord server. Um, if you can't get on there, I will send you a link and invite you in. Um, and feel free to talk all timey-wimey stuff with us. Now, of course, that means that the last S is to set up for the next week's episode. So join us next time for Season 3, Episode 78 of the Temporal Trek podcast and Season 4, Episode 4 of Enterprise as we are doing three episodes back-to-back -back in the Augment storyline. Borderland Augments Part 1, I suppose is the other way you could call it, but Borderland is the episode, and we are starting at zero minutes and zero seconds. As always, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you in the next time stream. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Please remember to like, subscribe, and review wherever you listen to it. If you would like to be a guest in the future, or give feedback, 
you can contact me by either searching for the Temporal Trek Podcast Facebook page or find me on Twitter at Rider underscore Coattail. Also search the Temporal Trek Podcast. You can also find me on Instagram at Daniel underscore Hitch underscore Writer. Scripted elements of the show are a work of pure fan fiction and any views and opinions expressed in the episode discussions are my own or that of the guest. They do not reflect the rights holders of Star Trek. Any Star Trek sound effects or music are used under the terms of fair use and are not my own work. The intro music, Birthright by Audio Binger, is royalty-free from the Free Music Archive. Check out their work and others at freemusicarchive.com. The Temple Trek is a free podcast with no Patreon or sponsorship. However, if you would like to support the show, you can find my books by searching Daniel Peter Hitch on Amazon. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you in the next time stream.